0: hey everybody welcome to another episode of inking of immunity it's mike here joined by my co-host becky and we are speaking with Dr. Marin O'Dell, who is an assistant professor and director of graduate studies for the Department of American Studies at the University of Alabama. She received her bachelor's from Swarthmore College and her PhD in Atlantic History from New York University. Marin specializes in early American and Native history with a particular focus on the history of the body and cross-cultural engagements. She's also interested in the role of narrative and memory making in colonial projects as well as an Indigenous resistance to those projects. Welcome, Marin Thanks
1: so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on your podcast.
0: So would you mind telling us a little bit more about who you are and, and where you come from?
1: Well, I think you you hit the important parts, but as you said, I'm an assistant professor here at UA in American Studies. I am from the Appalachian foothills of Central West Virginia, although I have lived at various points in Philadelphia and New York City. And of course now I live here in Alabama. But yeah, beyond what I do, you know, with my scholarship, I guess I would consider myself a writer and a scholar as well as a professor and an amateur birdwatcher. <laughs> I suppose those are my my primary <laughs> characteristics.
0: I love it.
2: I know, right. (laughs) And could you tell us a little bit about your journey into academia? What sort of drove you into that area of interest?
1: Yeah, well, you know, a journey into academia makes it sound a little bit like, I don't know, the first half hour of Apocalypse Now or something. (laughs) (laughs) It could well be. (laughs) But it's, it's not nearly that exciting for me, I'm afraid. You know, I ended up going into this field and this line of work probably fairly organically. I had a number of really fantastic undergraduate classes with people who, who kind of showed me that early America is this really diverse, fascinating place with just all of these stories. And I knew that I wanted to be a writer. I knew that I wanted to think about Native American and newcomer relationships. So from there, it felt fairly straightforward to go into an Atlantic history program because that's a space that was really encouraging people to think in these big ways to say like early America is way more than just like the founders sitting around signing parchment, right? That it, it, we can kind of pull all of these different stories of Europeans and natives and Africans into much bigger pictures, but also much more intimate pictures of kind of day-to-day lives. And, um, yeah, I don't know that I chose to focus on the history of the body or, or, you know, this topic sort of came to me, I guess, rather than, Mm -hmm. you know, me knowing that this is what I wanted to work on. I think I sort of stumbled across it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Just gripped your attention when you stumbled across it. (laughs) Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you all want the story
1: of kind of how this, this initial book project came about, but it actually was something that I'd seen as an undergraduate in the archives in the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. I was researching something for an undergraduate thesis, and I came across an account of a native man, a Lenape man, who had been scalped by Pennsylvania's colonists and survived. And it was just this sort of offhanded moment in the text that I was looking at. Saying, oh, and then he ran away, you know, holding his, his forehead where his skin was cut. And I just stopped and, and I was like, I don't, I didn't know that somebody could survive scalping. I couldn't picture this. This was such a violent, strange event. And after that, I just kind of had so many questions about what it would mean to be physically marked like that. That that was sort of the origin point mm-hmm. for my research is me kind of sitting and thinking, oh, if that's happened to this one person, there's so many other stories like that. And I, I need to know about them.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting.
0: <laughs> and really something that we don't typically think of. It's a kind of a role reversal yeah. when we're, we're thinking about American history, at least in public education. So mm-hmm. what, a, what an interesting kind of way to get into this subject. Right. Yeah. So. While you were a PhD candidate at New York University, you wrote an article on the deep history of tattoo removal. So here on the podcast, we've mostly been focusing on the process of tattooing and the marks themselves and those that wear them and not necessarily the removal. So it seems from your article that tattoo removal has existed alongside their application for a really long time. So I'm wondering, how can examining this deep history give us a better understanding of the tattoos, the people that wore and embodied them, as well as those that they were engaging with?
1: Yeah, that was such a fun bit of the research to write, and um, I was so delighted with the reception of that article. It got reprinted actually in the Atlantic, which just tickled me to no end. I think because it it showed that there's a real public hunger for these stories right and that people find tattooing really compelling um yeah i think looking at removal or kind of attempts at removal which is mostly what i was finding it tells us of course tattooing has so much power and what i was trying to get at with that piece was that you know these marks have such significant tales embedded in them about social standing or cultural allegiances, past experiences. So that's why we see people trying sometimes to erase them or to rewrite them, you know, because there's such stakes involved that people don't want to be carrying these marks around always. And so we often think of tattoos as these really valorized marks that are about personal identity, that they're chosen But, you know, I think probably as long as humans have been getting tattoos, there's also been people who have had ambiguous or or complicated relationships to their own marks and maybe don't want them or maybe wish that they could control them a little bit better. So, yeah, I mean, the two things that really stood out from doing that work, one was it's interesting to think about the actual methods of removal and Part of what I was finding, of course, is a lot of a lot of early modern descriptions of removal involve processes that I don't think actually help. <laughs> I don't I don't you know I don't think that they were actually particularly useful in re- removing tattoos. Or if they were, they came with probably a lot of scarification and you know their own set of marks that would have been on top of the tattoo. They wouldn't have been subtle. You know, you would have had to have. Um, mm-hmm kind of a burn or something almost that then tells its own story. One fun little thing when I was researching that piece, I'd found an account where a Frenchman in Louisiana claims to have removed a tattoo on a Native American man using cantharids or or blister beetles. That like he crushed blister beetles and made sort of a poultice with plantain leaves. And this was just one of those very tiny research triumphs of the only other scholar I had seen who had sort of written about this had said, oh, that doesn't make any sense and that's really silly and he's clearly inventing this and I do think that the the guy was telling a tall tale, to be clear. I don't think this is a story that really happened the way he said it did but I was thinking about it and I went and actually talked to some entomologists and they're like, yeah, blister beetles can burn your skin and there's no reason to think that you couldn't, especially with a, a fairly shallow tattoo Use that to kind of at least blur or erase some of the marks and so i felt very validated yeah. by that to be able to put that in the in my work and say no no he really might have used blister
2: beetles so anyway that, yeah that's so interesting And yeah. I, oh, yeah. I mean honestly I had never thought about tattoo removal existing for as long as tattoos had and you know you think about tattoo removal and I just think of laser mm-hmm. removal and I know that there were obviously these more aggressive ways of removing them maybe (laughs) but I had really never considered that it might have such a huge history as well so thinking about that and you know the psychological impact of having the marks changing how you feel about the marks the impact of the new marks that you create and trying to get rid of those marks that's really really interesting yeah and you know if there's one more thing
1: I could say about the sort of removal element is that yeah, I think you end up with this sort of layered history on the skin of, you know, the mark that you might want, the mark that you might not want, the scars and the efforts to sort of rewrite it. The other funny thing about that element of my research was that I think that those are sort of tall tales. Those are sort of these, these sort of exaggerated events. And as several of the examples I found were actually, I think, pretended removals of pretended tattoos. So People claiming that they had tattoos, which may or may not have ever actually existed, and then claiming to have then removed said tattoos. Again, I'm I'm mostly focused in my work on kind of early modern European engagements with indigeneity. Mm -hmm. And I found, especially for a lot of Frenchmen, that they did this and that this becomes a sort of way to, I think, get some of the cultural cachet of these exotic marks, but not actually have to have them or to be able to override the fact that they didn't actually have the cultural access that they claimed, you know, that they're telling these stories saying, oh, I've been adopted by this tribe and I have all of this sort of go between power and they may have, or they may not have, but then they'll say, well, I did get a tattoo while I was there, but I decided to remove it. And I'm I'm reading this and I'm like, did you or did you just make this entire thing up? I don't know. So that's something that I've thought a lot yeah. about is what, what do we do with that, right? That somebody like yeah. has to invent this whole story.
2: So your work focuses primarily on um, sort of 17th and 18th century work in America, a time where cross-cultural engagement was very high. So could you kind of set that scene a little bit? So what stories can Tatooine and and other body modification practices sort of tell us about these encounters?
1: Mm. I mean, I think I would say that it's so hard to pick a single scene to set from that period, right? Mm. So a little bit of what drew me and and still draws me to this period for, for my studies is that it's such a diverse space and there's so many different communities overlapping and kind of struggling for power. And I think that's where body modification came in for me is that it's where we see those contests for power in this really intimate and very tactile way, right? That it's not just about kind of these theoretical ideas. It's its actually about lived experience and um, that these relationships, you know, leave a mark on people, right, quite, quite literally. And people are sitting alongside one another getting tattoos or very violently and very viscerally, you know, harming one another with things like scalping in ways that are not distanced and they're not far apart. So, I mean, I think why I wanted to think about some of these types of indigenous body modification practices and how they get kind of picked up and repurposed by settlers is just that, you know, body modification is very ideologically malleable so that we can assign all these different stories to them and we can kind of tell
0: different things about them. Ideologically malleable. I, I like that the <laughs> line. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about how these colonial powers used indigenous body modification practices to help manufacture really one of the great American myths of manifest destiny.
1: Yeah, I guess I would say that what I am interested in, in this book that I just finished, and, you know, this project overall, was this sort of question about how settlers or colonists sort of take up indigenous practices and repurpose them in ways that are meant to kind of Strengthen their own hand, and and then of course trying to see the ways that Native American societies push back on that, or they use those same practices to their own ends. And I'm interested in the ways that newcomers to the Americas are kind of both like romanticizing indigeneity and rejecting it. Sometimes both at once. Sometimes one more than the other. But that settlers want to take on indigeneity. like they, they want that authorization of feeling like it's their space. And so they sometimes do that through kind of taking up these practices. But other times they kind of use them as a way to further marginalize Native Americans, or this shows sort of their lack in some fashion, their lack of civility, their lack of sovereignty, their lack of power, or even their lack of kind of authentic indigeneity, which then like settlers will decide, well, we get to decide that for you, right? We're going to determine whether you're you're really Native or not. But that's all just to say that what I'm sort of tracing or seeing in this book is how settlers use tattooing as a tool of diplomacy or cultural adoption or affiliation, but then also use it sometimes in kind of narratives as a way to insist on, like I said, indigenous lack. Like I see scalping is used constantly and obsessively as a metaphor. It shows up in all kinds of fiction. And that's to tell a story about native violence and lack of civility. And then tattooing is about this sort of idea that native people lack interiority, to say, oh, they're fixated on the outside of the body. They decorate their bodies, but they don't kind of have any deeper appreciation of what it means to be a person or be part of a society, you know, which is, which is wild. When we think about, of course, tattoos being really rich cultural symbols. Um, One of the things that struck me right away was I looked at um, Linnaeus's human categorizations from like what the 1750s, where he's sort of trying to organize humans into different sort of racial species. And, one of the things that he says is, he, he says, homo Americanus, Native Americans, right? One of the defining features of of the American as a type is that he, quote, paints himself with fine red lines. You know, so that's about tattooing and that tattooing becomes a sort of racial marker as much as anything.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting to me how this, I mean, we're talking about 17th and 18th century, 16th, 1700s, mm-hmm. kind of leading into early America, but how much this resonates today with the globally connected world that we all live in. So you're also interested in Native representation in pop culture today, and it had me thinking about the recent revitalization and, and recreation of many Indigenous cultural practices, especially tattooing, which which we obviously focus on. So with that, have you noticed a rise in colonialist or capitalist appropriation of these practices? And what forms do you see these opposing forces taking today compared to that time period that you're focused on?
1: Mm, that's such a great question. Yeah. There's a couple things. I don't know if I would say that I see a, a rise in it maybe, but there's a sort of steady state or there's some, some things that are definitely happening in contemporary Tattooist communities that I think are worthy of conversation. And, you know, I think there's probably two different elements here. One is what you're talking about, which is sort of appropriation of indigenous symbols or iconography. And the other is very longstanding, I think, with that 20th century revival of kind of tattooing in, in Western societies. There's a lot of, I guess, what I'd call like misimaginings of Indianness in certain types of tattooing. I'm thinking about kind of Indian imagery by which I mean like just yeah stereotypes or sort of uh, racial tropes. I mean there's a whole history of sort of flash that is very stereotyped with like skulls with headdresses or dream Mm -hmm. catchers of course as the classic example or sort of very sexualized images of sort of Indian maidens, right? The sort of half-naked, mm-hmm. uh, sort of Pocahontas trope or whatever. And, you know, those aren't indigenous images, but they're ideas about Indians that then sort of have a life of their own and I think are are pretty pernicious. And I think a lot of responsible, thoughtful tattoo artists today are very conscious of that and are are moving away from that. But it, it's just sort of an ongoing process of people being aware about what those sorts of images are saying and discouraging, I think, people from sort of thoughtlessly picking them up. The other half of that is what you were saying about kind of appropriation of, of culturally significant images. And I think and I hope that that's becoming very much devalued and being kind of put put away. Um, again, I think that there's a lot of people who are very respectful, thoughtful tattooists who that's never going to cross their minds. Essentially, you know, I think the advice that I would give when I've been asked about this before from people interested in getting tattoos is, right, like, you'll know if you have permission for that, right, as a non-Native person, you'll know because you will have had those conversations with an Indigenous community and cultural advisors. And if you don't have that, then you shouldn't be doing it. But yeah, I mean, I the one example that comes to mind was, this was just a few years ago, but I remember the Osage Nation, and I don't know why this was, but suddenly it had become very popular for a lot of people to use the Osage spider symbol for tattoos. And they had to put out a statement saying, this is a sacred symbol. And actually, historically, very specific individuals both earned the right to have it and earned the right to give it and that they hadn't had anybody in the Osage nation for over a century who had had the right to tattoo somebody with that mark so that certainly no one outside of the Osage, you know, would have that right. So hopefully that'll be a thing that people become more attentive to going on.
2: Yeah. You know, just coming off of that, I I do wonder about kind of the popularity of some of these symbols and images among people who just would never question it. So, you know, the kind of Pocahontas type images. And that just used to be here, at least. I I don't know if it's the same for you guys. Um, It was a really popular sort of image. So, you know, things like that, that I I just wonder if we ever pointed it out to people or mentioned it to people, if it's ever anything that they even thought about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so often what I have to emphasize with students is that these are stereotypes, but they're often positive stereotypes. And this is sort of the interesting challenge is that people will sometimes pick these things up and want to, like I said, treat native culture as this sort of resource that they can mine for stuff. And it's sometimes meant as a vision, at least of, well, this is something that I'm, I'm honoring or celebrating, or I'm embracing, you know, and I often have to have this conversation with students to say, people can say that, but we can still sort of see how it's damaging, right? That we can sort of look at, you know, just because Mm -hmm. Disney's Pocahontas is a beautiful princess who can speak to animals, right? That has a sort of positive vision of her as this proto-environmentalist and whatever, but the story that it embeds is one that still is ultimately dehumanizing and distancing for real contemporary native people. And so like what you were saying, I think is about people who certainly of a particular time and place, probably picked these items out, you know, went, like you said, and looked at the flash and was like, that's what I want. And they may have done it with a sort of vision of this is beautiful, or this is a certain story again, for me, right? This is a story about what I value. And we can understand that, but we can also kind of say, "Yeah, but looking back on it, how did that come from a sort of place of of not really understanding the context?"
2: Yeah, definitely. I wonder how it makes people feel now if they if they were to think about it. Sorry, I'm just getting <laughs> off on it. <a, laughs> no, no. It, it's, <laughs> I think I
0: think this is a I think this is a really important point to make, and I think it goes back to what you said earlier, Marin, that if you are someone who is wanting to tattoo yourself with a symbol that is not of your culture like you'll know if it's appropriate you would have met people you would have formed relationships you would have had those conversations Mm -hmm. and I think that is the key fork in the road for a lot of people where whether you're doing it for what you think are good or positive reasons what are you actually doing in life and in your relationships with others So I think that, I think, yeah, I think we could talk about this (laughs) a, a lot more. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to dig into here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to what I look at in early America, which is that so often tattoos are an expression of cultural affiliation and that's why they're powerful and they're dangerous. And that's true even today, again, especially for a lot of the sort of revitalization of traditional practices for, for native nations, that that comes with a sort of stakes and buy-in and sort of famously or infamously, Justin Trudeau has a tattoo on his arm that is based on some work from a Haida artist. And, you know, I think initially the conversation around that was that the artist was not informed about this. This sort of came out of the blue to him. And I think initially, you know, when he was asked about it by reporters, he was like, oh, you know, I'm flattered. Or, you know, he wanted to see that as a positive thing. But after some missteps by the Trudeau administration and their relationship with First Nations in Canada, I think a lot of people, you know, in in the Haida community and others were kind of like, you didn't earn that there was somebody who got quoted in a news article saying, you know, you don't get to have our ink on your skin, right? You don't, it feels like a betrayal to have this image that's coming from one of our artists that you just sort of thought you could use without asking us. And then you can't follow through in terms of the diplomatic commitments and this sort of ongoing respectful relationship that we would expect in turn. So,
0: yeah. Exactly. And I think that a lot of people... If they were willing to put in that work rather than just go and get the mark, if you're willing to go and talk to people and learn about the history and the culture, I think most people would say, you know what, I probably don't need this mm. on my body.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not just aesthetic, right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't even consider it beyond aesthetics. Yeah. Um, I know you mentioned there about writing, <laughs> writing a book currently. And I just wanted to dig into that a little bit more. So what is it that you're wanting to kind of accomplish with the book? Is it sort of um, distilling ideas that you've previously written about? Or is it something that you've taken into a new direction or a bit both?
1: Um, well, I mean, so it's coming out of my doctoral dissertation. And this is my first book. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, it is all from work I've done in the past. What feels like a very long past at this point. <laughs> been a long, it's been a long, slow journey. Uh, it's finally in production, and I'm I'm so delighted. Um, it should be out sometime next fall or early winter. So I'm I'm happy to say that it's slowly getting put to bed. But essentially, it's I'm taking tattooing and scalping as these two sort of seemingly very different types of mark as case studies for. Thinking about, like I said, settler-native relations in early America, and especially Anglo-America, to be clear. I'm thinking about the British and then thinking about kind of the early United States. But um, trying to understand what settlers see or think they see when they look at Indian bodies, kind of the stories they tell themselves about what is a tattoo. And, you know, even from the very earliest English explorations of kind of the North American coast. There are people who are like, are tattoos writing? And if it is, well, what does it mean that these people have writing when we've told ourselves that they don't? And looking at tattoos and trying to tell a story to themselves about it. But then the next step is what happens when you have English bodies that are getting marked with indigenous mm-hmm. signs. And so I look at... Um, I look at soldiers and diplomats who get tattooed as part of efforts at kind of cross-cultural affiliation or alliance. I look at captives who get tattoos and then later are very upset about it. And and kind of that, again, a question of removal or that question of how do I explain away this thing that I now think of as a disability or a sort of act of violence? And then the other half of the book is thinking about scalping kind of through a similar lens of what happens when colonies take this spiritually significant kind of act of warfare and commoditize it in some ways, you know, by offering bounties and and sort of exchange value of money for a human body part. And then the, the final chapter is about scalping survivors, which comes back to that thing that I saw as an undergraduate that I couldn't stop thinking about, which is sometimes people survive scalping and what on earth is that like? And how does that how does that story get told? And so that's the last chapter in the book. And I'm thinking about, first of all, that indigenous survivors, they do not get any sort of space in American stories, right? The story is is always about kind of white bodies being endangered, especially white women and and their bodies being kind of under attack and that they become these massively um, valuable kind of propaganda resources, especially in the early Republic, to say that the settlements in, in Tennessee or Kentucky are full of scalping survivors. And so that you have these sort of people who have these scars that are under their hat or under a wig and they can kind of reveal or hide as they want. And it becomes this sort of, you know, not to overdo the metaphor, but like there's a sort of hidden quality to this violence that kind of gets put away and then gets sort of explosively mm-hmm. revealed at various moments.
0: And speaking of that, the way that bleeds over into pop culture and media. I really liked your piece. You wrote on The Revenant, um, (laughs) the movie. and I I really, I appreciate the the creative way you approach uh, writing about history. And so that was alongside your class. So you had Mm -hmm. a writing uh, assignment and you volunteered to write a piece alongside them and you chose to write about scalping in The Revenant. Could you just talk a little bit about that and how that- image of scalping kind of plays into this narrative that we've been talking about
1: that was such a fun piece to write yeah um and it's been a while since i've seen the revenant but uh it just struck me when i did see that that it was trying to make this film that was sort of um groundbreaking and it was going to be really gritty and it was going to be really authentic right but it still fell into some of the same things that Hollywood does tend to do, which is to say, oh, if we're going to have a story about kind of the old American West, it's going to have a white man at the center and it's going to be about kind of his struggles against nature, against Native people or whatever. And it was a movie that was very sympathetic to Native characters and was trying to be I think, very thoughtful about that. But so when I was watching it and then the villain at some point is revealed to be this guy who's been previously scalped, you know, I'm sitting there in the audience going, oh, Like, oh, gosh, that's so fascinating because (laughs) because it fits in with the 19th century frontier tales that I think were probably the source material for the film, right? The story of Hugh Glass that they're kind of reimagining there, but the idea that this person has been kind of driven into madness, right, or that his villainy kind of has this origin from this act of violence that he's experienced, seemed like so fascinating to me because that film seems to be really setting up a story that's like the real villain was capitalism, right? The real villain is the fur trade that these men are sort of trapped in in this really ex- exploitative space that's going to destroy the environment of the upper midwest. So there's there's just so much to unpack there that I was like, yeah, I have to write about this. And then like you were saying, Mike, I, I teach this class usually every year or every other year called Imagining the Indian, which is looking at kind of pop culture representations. And I often ask the students in there to write an essay that is kind of like creative nonfiction or or doing something a little bit more imaginative than your standard seminar paper. And so it's like, how do you kind of put yourself into the story? I've had students write great pieces about avatar about disney's pocahontas about oh my gosh so many different tv shows children's books all kinds of things and i had said well i'll try to write one as well and and that way if you're having questions about the format or the style we can look at mine as an example or or think about it and it you know and they they were so great about reading it and giving me feedback as i worked and it took me far longer to finish the piece than it took them to write their papers (laughs) so it was also sort of um do as I say, not as I do moment <laughs> in terms of, you know, okay, well, hey, when does this, this paper do? And I'm like, well, I don't know, because mine's not done yet. <laughs> but I've done that. And I've done that in subsequent classes. And I've been really, really happy with uh, with the outcome, as at least as sort of giving me the nucleus of an idea for, for future essays. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So you're clearly very busy and not... not... <laughs> Not only writing a book, but everything else that comes along with academia. Um, Do you have any other tattooing and body modification um, projects that you're working on at the minute that you might want to tell us about?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. My next project moves away from a lot of this, but I will say that I think I'll probably be thinking about tattoos for the rest of my career in some fashion, partly because, you know, (laughs) once you pop, you can't stop, right? You're looking for them everywhere. They show up in the archives. (laughs) You know, it becomes this sort of thing where I feel like I have some sort of eagle eye thing now where I'm like reading and I'm like, oh, 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 I want to look at that. You know, there's a couple of things that didn't make their way into the book that I'm hoping to kind of figure out a way to write about probably in articles that hopefully will get done sometime this coming year. One, I guess, is that on a very theoretical or conceptual level, I'm very interested in places where I kind of see tattoos pop up on sites that aren't human skin. So looking at the history of tattooing in early America, you know, a great resource for people doing that kind of work is looking at things like Mississippian art. So Mm -hmm. stuff that's come from out of Moundville, which is just down the road from us here um, at UA that art often shows us what people actually had in terms of sort of facial tattoos or, or sort of marks on their bodies. And so I was thinking about that, but then I moved beyond that to sort of look at dendroglyphs in particular. So, so sort of carvings or markings on trees, which especially in the Northeast show up in a lot of colonial sources because people are trying to use those to figure out boundaries for land sales. And you have, again, English sources sort of asking, is this writing? Is this not writing? But it was very common, especially for war parties or travelers to carve stories or sort of accounts on trees to say, here's who was here. And here's the number of people we took captive in this raid. And they usually signed them by using a face, sort of sketching out a face that would sometimes have tattoos on it. And so I've been like, oh, gosh, what, what happens when we have tattoos on a person's face being used as a sort of signature sign that's then actually also marking the landscape. And then what happens when those things also get used to sign things like treaties or land deeds, which is also pretty common that, you know, a colonial translator might write the person's name and then the person would sign by kind of sketching their face or using a clan motif or something like that. And I don't quite know what to do with this yet, but I know that it's fascinating. So this is what I'm sort of struggling with, but I'm hoping to write an article that's pulling all of that together to say what happens when tattoos kind of jump off the skin and onto the page. Yeah. yeah
2: that sounds oh, really cool. If you have ideas, <laughs> yeah. please tell me.
1: I, I, need, I need all the help i get. <laughs> so
0: It really challenges the way we think about language and writing and history. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I can't wait to read more about that when it comes out. Yeah, hopefully. definitely. So I guess we should give the title of your book that's coming out soon, since we haven't already. Uh, That's uh, titled Skin Deep, Tattoos, Scalps, and the Contested Language of Bodies in Early America. So Mm -hmm. everybody stay on the lookout for that.
1: It's coming out with um, University of Pennsylvania Press. And like I said, probably sometime next fall or early winter. So I'll be very excited when it's here. Big Christmas
0: presents for everybody next <laughs> That's time. right. Buy, it, buy <laughs> it for everyone. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so I guess before we let you go, is there anything else you wanted to ask, Becky?
2: Um, If you have any way that people can get in touch if they want to, if you want to sort of plug a website or any social media channels or anything like that.
1: Oh, gosh. Well, I have to confess that I am not the world's most active social media user. I am on Twitter But if anyone gets in touch with me on Twitter, just know that it could be either an immediate response or a response six months from now, just because I'm sometimes (laughs) for my own sanity, I'm I'm taking extended breaks, but I am on there. um, And it's just my name, Marinodal. I am hoping to get a website up here soon. I don't have one currently, but people Mm -hmm. are always welcome to email me at my UA address if they have questions. And, you know, yeah, I love hearing from people who are working on similar projects. So I would definitely encourage your listeners to be in touch.
2: That's awesome. Thank you so yeah. much.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks thanks for coming on with us. This is great. This is so fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was.
1: that interesting. Thank oh, you. thanks so much for thinking to invite me. This was really fabulous. Thanks for listening. We're on Twitter at inking underscore immunity and on Instagram and Facebook at inking.of.immunity. The hosts of the show are Mike Smatana at the University of Alabama and Dr. Becky Owens at UK Sunderland. Kira Yancey is the production manager. Thanks to the University of Alabama Anthropology Department for helping make this show possible. You can find our full, unedited Season 2 interviews on our Facebook page or watch them happening live on Facebook most Wednesday mornings. See you next time.